Unmute, unmute, unmute. Good evening. My name is Deborah Carmen, and I'm an alcoholic. And I love this program because it saved my life. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first thing I want to do is welcome anyone that's new. Welcome to the world's biggest lost and found. <laughs> this is the greatest, this has been the greatest journey of my life. And I pray that whatever you find here, that you'll never be homesick for hell, never. So um, one other thing I wanted to share is that I love the term, the kinship of common suffering. You know, that was the Lasker Award that was given to Alcoholics Anonymous. And what an extraordinary phrase, the kinship of common suffering. So um, I want to tell you a little bit about my story. I want to tell you what it was like. I want to thank you for asking me to speak tonight. <clears throat> I was call number seven, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but I am still bringing my A game as best I can. <laughs> So I like to begin by saying I love this program because it saved my life. Congratulations, Tom. Tom saved a lot of lives and I've gotten to witness that. So congratulations on your birthday and for being here tonight. And for all the chip takers, I pray you stay. Um, I, was, uh, I was born in Akron, Ohio and I was raised by my great grandparents. I was born to a very, very young mother and um, my great grandparents parents were in the Civil War. So they were in their 80s when they took me. And they brought me in a little uh, wicker basket to California. And uh, we settled on a small chicken farm in Pomona, California. You know, I don't know about you, but I knew at seven years old, I am not chicken farm material. <laughs> um, but I love my great grandparents and I was homeschooled by those parents. And um, and my great-grandfather, who raised me, who educated me, was a Pentecostal preacher. And I don't know if you know what Pentecostals are, but it's a religion that they're hellfire and brimstone, a punishing God, writhing in the aisles, doing testimonials, speaking in tongues. I mean, completely crack-a-doodle. <laughs> and, and, um, and my great-grandfather was this beautiful man, and I knew... At 10 years old, I am not a Pentecostal. I don't belong with these crazy people. They were scary people. And I knew that at 10 years old. And, um, and I love my great-grandparents. As I mentioned, I was homeschooled by them. And my great-grandfather carried around the Bible, spoke to, spoke to everybody about the Bible, and, and especially spoke about miracles in the Bible. My great-grandfather talked about miracles, 333 miracles in the Bible, 333 miracles in the Bible, Deborah. 35 of those were performed by Jesus himself. Miracles, miracles, miracles. We never saw one miracle on that chicken farm. <laughs> and I said, Pop, we need a miracle. And you know what Pop said? He said, what kind of a miracle are you looking for? I said, Pop, I need roller skates. We need a bicycle. We need an electric washing machine. We need a television. 
We needed all kinds of stuff. I needed the Santa Claus God. And I knew that when I was young. I knew that it just wasn't enough. But I had this beautiful life and, you know, I had no idea what, what would transpire or how things, and none of those things influenced my, what was to become my alcoholism. That beautiful man, <clears throat> not feeling that I had parents. I never knew my father. Um, my mother was a model for Clairol, the hair company. She was so glamorous. She had six husbands and her mother had five husbands. And these are the ones they married. They were these glamorous Hollywood type girls. And, um, and I was fascinated by that, but I had this really, really small life. And I was an obedient kid. I was this moon-faced, toe-headed, saucer-eyed, naive little kid. And um, when I was 14 years old, something happened. My great-grandfather, because of his failing health and a pension pocketbook, said that I was gonna go home and live with Peggy. That was my mother, glamorous Peggy. You know, for a kid who has, you know, I had no, no social interaction with other kids. I had no peer group that I associated with. In fact, when I was 14 years old, I only knew really about two things. I knew about chickens and church. Cockadoodle and crackadoodle. <laughs> so imagine how I felt when I found out that I'm going to go home be introduced into this completely different lifestyle. My mother was very glamorous. She always drove a, a Lincoln Continental with suicide doors or a new Cadillac Eldorado. And she'd always have these tight dresses and six inches of cleavage and pink hair, colorful hair and high heel shoes. And I, um, I knew that I wasn't gonna fit in. But you know, I was an obedient kid, that little naive, moon-faced, toe-headed, just saucer-eyed child of that punishing God that my great-grandfather had given me. And my great-grandfather asked me to go home and just be an obedient child. <clears throat> and they would put me in school. I needed an education. My great-grandfather had homeschooled me. He taught me to write. And I have, to this day, exquisite handwriting. But I didn't know too much else. He taught me mathematics. He taught me spelling. He taught me little things, little simple things that he knew. And um, so I went home. And I lived with that mother and her latest husband, a man appropriately named Dick Tate. <laughs> and he called all the shots, well, and he knew nothing about children. But I was, kids were to be seen and not heard. And so I stayed in the background. I was just an obedient kid. The first day they put me into school, I wet my pants in front of the entire class. It seemed like 300 kids in an auditorium. And here I am, absolutely terrified. I was just that leaky vessel. You know, I didn't have the social interaction skills. I didn't have any confidence. I felt like a misfit. I looked like a misfit. I just didn't fit. And I knew I didn't fit at 14. By the time I was 16, I was invited to a party. And I'd never been to a party before. You know, in our Pentecostal faith, or the Pentecostal faith of my great-grandfather, we didn't have birthdays, we didn't have celebrations, we didn't have cakes and candles and Christmas, we didn't have packages and parties and balloons, we didn't have dances and a lot of music. We had a, a string quartet in the Pentecostal Christian Missionary Alliance Church, and that was the music I knew. It was, it was just this small life. So imagine how I felt when I was invited 
to a party at 16 years old. I mean, this had to be a miracle. <laughs> you know, me the doubter with the miracles. And you know, it's interesting. I'm just gonna interject something that's always been so important to me. I do believe that because of my alcoholism and the trajectory that I was on, nothing would have stopped me from drinking, nothing short of a miracle. And I didn't believe in miracles. And you know, imagine how I would have felt had I known that 25 years later, I'd pick up a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the forward to the second edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says this. It says, since this book was first published in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Oh, bingo, there's that word. I don't believe in miracles, a wholesale miracle. Well, the Webster's Dictionary definition of that word miracle means a sudden and wondrous, unexpected event, inexplicable by natural or scientific law. Something that can't be explained, but usually something associated with being delivered by a divine agent. That's what the word miracle means. But the word wholesale means that I've got something with a sufficient enough value that I can sell it to you. And it's got a substantial enough value that you can sell it to somebody else. So I'm here selling the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight because I love this program. So here I am 16 years old um, in this really small marginalized life, going nowhere, invited to a party. Oh my God, I was absolutely thrilled. And I went to that party. And at that party, I drank a six pack of beer. I, I drank a pint of slow gin. I smoked a pack of cigarettes. I got a nail and a potato and I pierced both ears. And by dawn's early light, God knows what other orifices had been plundered, prodded, or otherwise poked, but I was a changed girl. I was a changed girl. I love the effect produced by alcohol. All I thought about was more. And I was to drink for 25 years nonstop. And you know, over the course of time, it doesn't happen overnight, but it happens subtly. It happens gradually. It happens when you least expect it. <clears throat> that little darling, moon-faced, toe-headed, saucer-eyed, naive kid, all of a sudden became that bodice-ripping, thong-snapping, tabletop-stripping, pole-dancing, whiskey swilling, gin swigging, beer chugging, chain smoking, pill popping, drunk driving, car wrecking, credit card scamming, check kiting, husband stealing, tax evading, cheating, lying, thieving, skank ass whore. I'm the girl your mother warned you about. <laughs> I like the effect produced by alcohol. If you told me all those things were gonna happen, all those things happened, and I'm not even gonna go into the details, but I can tell you they had consequences. They didn't happen overnight, but little by little. Alcohol subtly erodes your life, and what alcohol was to do was to steal the goodness right out of me. At 19 years old, 
I did a weekend the Tijuana jail. I don't know who's ever been, well, I know Joseph. <laughs> <clears throat> it is not a pleasant scene, the Tijuana jail. I did a week in the Tijuana jail and I was, you know, that little darling, moon-faced, toe-headed, just sweet, naive, saucer-eyed kid in the Tijuana jail. Not a pleasant experience, lucky to get out, all because of alcohol and the company I decided to keep. And all I could do when I was fortunate enough to get out of that jail cell was head to that border in San Diego and get a drink. I need a drink. I need to drink. I need to put that stuff behind me. At the end of my 19th year, something happened, and I share this at the podium. I never used to share this, but I share it now, mainly because maybe it's politics, Maybe it's a sign of the times. Maybe it's because I hope nobody else makes the decisions that I made. I found myself at 19 years old, late in my 19th year, pregnant to a stranger. I don't have to explain how that happens. Alcohol is always part of that equation. And, um, and I didn't know what to do. I'm a kid without an education. I don't have a fallback plan. I need an income. I have to support myself. I'm already doing devious things. Now I find myself in this situation. I don't know what to do, but I am not parent material. <clears throat> Pardon me. I didn't know what to do. And I got, I made some connections and some phone calls and I got hooked up with some people. And I ended up meeting a stranger in a parking lot who drove me to a hotel in Los Angeles. I mean, I'm a complete stranger. I'm 19 years old. I've got this mess on my hands I don't know how to deal with. I'm drinking every day, drove drunk to get there. And also at that time, abortion was a capital crime. And in case you don't know what a capital crime is, it means it carries 25 years to life imprisonment if you're convicted of having or giving an abortion. And I was desperate. I had to roll the dice on that. And what that meant was you go in a room, with four strangers who hold you down because there's no anesthesia involved in this. There are no anesthetics, no knockout drops. They want in and out and a doctor did a procedure and the consequence of that procedure was I almost bled to death that night. I, I went into septic shock and almost died from that experience. But what I didn't know is that finally it took care of the problem. But what I didn't know is I would never bear children. I would never have children. I didn't know that was alcoholism. I thought that was just my best decision making to get me out of a situation. And so now I'm 19 years old. Again, I have no formal education. I have no formal training in anything. And I, I don't have any fallback plan. And driven by the confidence that alcohol gives me, I become a proficient prevaricator. I can spin a tail. And you're gonna believe just about anything I tell you. I apply for a job at Xerox. They needed a catalog librarian. And I put on my resume, I was 26 years old and I had a degree in library science from UCLA. I didn't even know what the Dewey Decimal System was. I thought it was something to do with music. <laughs> but you know, I was a quick study and a quick learner and I was very, very convincing. And I got that good job and I parlayed that job into another job in the semiconductor business, because I probably don't look it, 
but I'm an electrical engineer. <laughs> and I fill out a resume and get a wonderful job. <clears throat> and I parlayed that job into a very, very successful future. You know, I climbed the ladder to success horizontally. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every opportunity can there was an easier way than that resume. And there was an easier way than that skill set. <laughs> and, um, and what was to happen is all of those things um, manifested themselves into some good positions because I'm a hard worker. I'm desperate to succeed. I have a tenacious work ethic and an indefatigable drive to succeed. I am going to do anything it takes as long as it takes, as hard as it takes. And I did, and I was very successful. And I ended up leaving that semiconductor company with quite a bit of money. They were happy to pay me off to get rid of me. And um, I bought a small flower shop in Corona Del Mar, California. Imagine that. I'm, I'm 26 years old. I own a house on the Bayfront, and I buy a flower shop in Corona Del Mar. What a dream. Of course, I didn't know anything about flowers, but I figured that if I can do semiconductors and if I can do, if I can work for Xerox, <laughs> then I can do flowers. And I parlayed that into a very, very successful business. I ended up with four flower shops, an event planning business. And, you know, drinking is part of my everyday life. Drinking is part of every relationship I had. If you didn't drink, you're not going to be part of my scene. I don't roll with people who can't keep up. And I don't roll with people who don't have the same style and drive I have. <clears throat> so I've got this, these wonderful flower shops, this great business, and I'm drinking myself. <clears throat> I'm drinking myself completely into oblivion. I've already burnt through one husband, broken somebody's heart, caused him to have a nervous breakdown, walked out on him, you know, and I have this opportunity to marry another man and he's a trial attorney. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. He was in the CIA for 20 years. God would think that he would have been on to me. <laughs> I'm cheating on the boyfriend that I'm cheating on the husband with. I have an absolutely demagnetized moral compass. You put alcohol in this alcoholic body and the doctor's opinion states what happens to me. Pathological mental deterioration. But I didn't know it then because I didn't know you. So there was a lot I didn't know, but I drank and I drank and the consequences start to pile up. Things start to accumulate. Criminal charges, car wrecking, you know, getting in accidents and, and battery. I'm just things that I never would have thought I could have been associated with. And, um, and what was to happen is um, I found myself facing some serious problems in, in um, this late stage of my alcoholism. And I couldn't stop drinking. I wouldn't stop drinking. I thought drinking was part of my solution that demagnetized moral compass. I didn't have any goodness left in me. Alcohol began to steal everything from me. It has stolen my dreams. It has stolen the, any option to ever have a family, to have children. It has begun to then steal my business life. 
It had just stolen everything what could have been valuable about a character. And I essentially had no character because I had no ethics, I had no principles, and I certainly had no morals. And what was to happen was these consequences, these calamities, these catastrophes, this crappy oka pudding that had become my life had piled up to where I had to get a criminal defense lawyer to take me before the judge to plead a case of some serious stuff. And I got that criminal defense lawyer and he walked before a judge in South County and pleaded my case as follows. These are all alcohol related charges. And now I've got some check kiting things on top of it and I've got some assault charge and, and it was just everything. Everything that started to erode my life. I was dysfunctional. I was drinking every day. If I was awake, I was drinking. If I was drinking, I was drunk. If I was drunk, I was driving. If I was driving, I was car wrecking. I'm completely dis delusional at this point. And I get this criminal defense lawyer to go before a judge in South County and plead my case as follows. That I am willing to surrender my driving privilege for life. For life. You know that driving privilege? So you go places. I'm gonna surrender that driving privilege for life. And I'm going to accept double or triple the mandated sentence for my crimes in jail. But don't sentence me to Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm not like those people. I don't know who you are, but I'm scared to death of you. I'm terrified of you. And yet I had become the girl who walks into a bar and leaves 20 minutes later with a stranger and goes to a hotel, motel, hour long, whatever they call them, on Harbor Boulevard. I'm that girl now with that wonderful husband at home and those businesses just starting to implode. I'm that person. That judge looked at me. She peels her beady glasses down and she said, Deborah Carmen, how low do you want to go? You could have pierced my heart with an Excalibur. How low do you want to go? How humiliating, how shameful it was. I could feel the terror go through me at that moment. And she said, um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do if you're serious about that plea. The court will accept that in six weeks. We'll give you six weeks to really think about that. And in six weeks, if you come back here and want to enter that plea, we'll accept it and we'll pass a sentence on you. But I'm going to give you six weeks to think about it. And I walked out of that courtroom with all that shame, that terror, the bewilderment, the fear, everything that the book talks about, absolutely in this utterly hopeless, devastating state. And the only thing I could think about was I needed a drink. I needed a drink. And I drank. And I drank. And I drank. The darkest three weeks of my life. It was at Christmas time. Things were just getting darker and darker. And I was terrified. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was, my life was consumed with fear. I had no faith in my life. My husband traveled a lot. My husband was busy with his life. 
I have, I was afraid to stop drinking. I knew if I stopped drinking that there would be consequences. You know, I never used to share drugs as part of my problem. I always thought I was managing my weight because it was very important to me how I looked and my figure. So I'm taking copious amounts of pharmaceutical propellants and accelerants and anything you can get and sleeping with a pharmacist or two just to get what I need to manage my weight. So I'm totally strung out on amphetamines, jacked up all the time, and I'm loaded all the time. And this is, and I'm still facing three weeks from now, I'm facing this criminal sentence. And I don't know what to do. So my best thinking on a Sunday morning, February 2nd, 1992, you know, one of those glorious days where you walk outside and there are shafts of golden light, peach colored, amber light, luminous light, fragrance in the air, sunny days, Promethean blue seas. You walk outside and this will be a day where magic will happen. There was no magic in my life. There was nothing but darkness, darkness. I was lost in my life. And my best thinking on that morning, that glorious, beautiful February 2nd morning, was to call my last drinking hostage, an Irish guy from Limerick, Ireland named Tommy Sheehan. And I said, Tom, I've got to come over. Now, at this point, I'm, I'm hysterical. I'm writhing. I'm crying. I'm like those Pentecostal people in the middle of the aisle. I am totally crackadoodle. I'm whacked out on everything. And it's 10 o'clock in the morning on February 2nd, this glorious, magical day when all I, I knew was darkness. And I drank a quart of rum at 10 o'clock in the morning. 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said to Tom Sheehan, all but that last golden swallow. I said, Tom, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I have to go back to court. They wanna sentence me with those crazy people. And, and I, was, I was completely hysterical and lost. And Tom Sheehan, who was a heavy, heavy drinker, bless his soul, looked at me and said, Deborah, you gotta quit drinking. You know what an alcoholic does when they hear something like that? Combustive, explosive. You could have just offloaded a napalm canister in the room. I completely exploded. I said, that's your idea of a solution? You're not listening to what I'm telling you. My life has completely melted down. And he says, you, you should stop drinking. Of course, I slammed that door behind me. And I don't remember going home that February 2nd, 1992, that beautiful, glorious golden morning. I remember I drank that rum. I remember looking at that clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't remember getting home. But I live at the beach in a tiny house by the sparkling sea. And I still have the great privilege because of Alcoholics Anonymous to still inhabit that little domain. And I walked inside that house I don't remember, disoriented, lost. Bill says it best on page eight, how dark it is before the dawn. How dark it is before the dawn. I felt that darkness, that pervasive darkness. My life had eroded. Everything had come to an end. You know, there were so many, there were suicidal thoughts. There was a, like driving my car off a cliff. There were all kinds of hideous things that go through your head. 
And something happened. All of that calamity and catastrophe, every molecule of pain and incomprehensible demoralization that the book talks about, all of the lies and the deceit, all of that that I was, for some reason, cataclysmic moment, that thunderbolt moment, I dropped to my knees. Now, I don't have a God in my life. I don't have any faith in my life. I'm absolutely at that hopeless state. The book talks about it. I'm hopeless. I didn't know it was alcoholism, but I knew that everything had gone absolutely scroogey haw. My life was absolutely scroogey haw. And I dropped to my knees at that moment. And I sang out that alcoholic anthem, to whom I have no idea. Can you help me? And I can feel the terror in my throat as I tell you now. Can you help me? That had to be the first miracle that I was ever to experience in my life. I have no idea how long I knelt there. I know it was a long time. The next thing that was to happen is I watched that clock. I knew that I would be sick. I'm an alcoholic who drinks 24 seven and I take pills and I'm speeded out, I'm strung out, I'm completely alcoholic and I knew I would have consequences. I had DTs, I detoxed myself, but it started after about six hours. And I remember looking at that clock that evening. I'll never forget the way I feel, even telling you now, with such disbelief looking at that clock. Six hours had to have passed and I hadn't had a drink. I hadn't had a drink in six hours. I'm an alcoholic with alcoholic insomnia because I've altered that whole circadian rhythm known as an internal clock. I am, I'm up, I'm down, I'm strung out, I'm taking 50 amphetamines a day, handfuls of this stuff, just to balance me out. And I am shaking and I am terrified and it is midnight. And I haven't had a drink. It had to have been 12 hours. I watched the sun break, the day break. That line from Bill, page 12, I stood in the sunlight at last. Bill talks about it, he says all that's necessary for you to make a beginning is willingness. I didn't know that then. What consumed me at that moment on my knees and what consumed me for those next hours that followed was a desperation and a small voice in the back of my, my head or my mind that said, if you squander this gift, this opportunity, I didn't know it was a gift. I wouldn't have described it as a gift. But if you squander this blessing, it will never come again. And I heard that. And I watched that clock. I watched the dawn break. And what has to be the second miracle of my life happened. I called you guys.
And I said, can you help me? And you know, only in Alcoholics Anonymous, where perfect strangers become lifelong friends, I called and a stranger answered the phone. Convivial, laughing, jolly, making fun of me. I said, I don't know if you can help me. He said, well, what do you think your problem is? I said, I really don't know, but I think I have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, well, we have your solution. I thought like I'm ordering a package or something, but you know what? It didn't matter. I was desperate. I was desperate. And that was the second miracle. And the third miracle, of which there are so many, I, I can't overwhelm you by telling you how many, but the third miracle that happened was that day I walked into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had just enough game left in me to hoist that white flag of surrender. Just a little humility and lots of desperation. You know, I come here tonight with two of the same ingredients that I walked into that room that day. Desperation and willingness, always, always from my operating manual. And what was to happen is I listened, but I was really sick. I'm not gonna tell you that I absorbed anything. This stuff, this stuff, it was all like white noise. I was not on the right frequency, but I know something had shifted and I knew the calm that I felt. That sense of surrender, that peace, that extraordinary lifting and the unknown. And the unknown didn't seem so terrifying, no matter what it was. I didn't have a crystal ball or a Ouija board or tarot cards to tell me what the future would look like. I didn't need to know. I just needed to be right here, right now, willing. And you told me, come all the way in. Sit all the way down. And you reached your arms all the way out to me. said, welcome. Been a long time since I had been welcome anywhere. It took me a long time to absorb all the things you said. I'm not going to tell you I had those thunderbolt lightning streaking through. I had a lot of those things, but they were DTs. I had... <laughs> I had a lot of sparkly things happening and I had things that were in my ear and in my hair and I'm, and I'm itching and I'm a mess and I'm a complete wreck. But I had a sense of calm. And you know, I looked around the room at these people that I had preordained that I was terrified of, these crazies. And you know, I liked what you said. You made me feel good. And your stories were so different than my story. But there was one thing that I related to that just maybe your story might be my next yet. So I was willing to pay attention. And I had the uniquity going on. I didn't do everything right, but I was desperate and I was willing. And I came to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day, every day. And what was to happen for me is this. 
I don't recommend the way I ran the program. Again, I had the uniquity going on, sort of still felt I was a little bit different. I was interviewing for sponsors, but not quickly. Uh, I thought I'd take my time. So I'm about a year and four months sober, still without a sponsor. Oh, but a caveat, I am sponsoring people. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, but people were attracted to me. And so I was sponsoring girls. And strangely enough, she's probably not in this meeting. I sponsor a girl named Michelle Esterly. She's 30 years sober. I still sponsor her today, my first sponsee. She was attracted to me. Cause you know what? I was showing up. I was reading, I was carrying, I was carrying the recipe book. And I had solution in here. I had the ingredients. You guys started to tell me I can cook up a wonderful life here. And I never ever related Alcoholics Anonymous to work. It was a treasure hunt. Everything that that book had, all the instructions, the mystical, magical places I would go. There are things in that book says on page 100, if we persist, remarkable things will happen. So I had a woman walk up to me, I'm a year and four months sober and she says her name was Kiki Factor. She, a lot of people knew her. She had an attitude. She had an edge. But you know what? She loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And when she walked into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous, heads turned. People wanted to talk to her. People liked her. She, she could just bloviate and spew and, and take your inventory up and down. And you know, she said a lot of things that hurt my feelings, but I had very delicate ego and a sensitive nature. But you know, she had something I wanted. She had 10 years of sobriety. And to me, that was golden. She walked in a room and she was golden. And she said to me, Deborah Carmen, you're never gonna stay sober. And I said, why is that Kiki? She said, do you have a sponsor? Uh, no. Have you worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh, no. And she said, honey, that's why. And she said, my dance card's all filled up, but I've got a spot for you. And you know, you could have put a tear on my head and anointed me. I felt like I belonged. I belonged to Kiki. I was part of Kiki's club. I was one of Kiki's girls. And you know, it made me feel like I belonged. And Kiki said to me, Kiki would say things I didn't want to hear in my early sobriety. She said, you need a service commitment. I said, okay, tell me what? She says, you'll clean the ashtrays. I said, oh, Kiki, I don't smoke. She said, what the heck does that have? Not that vernacular, but <laughs> Kiki could use some language. And so that has nothing to do with being of service. You're going to be of service. At every meeting, you're going to be of service. I became a cake girl. I was a greeter. I was the, I, I did the coffee. I cleaned the ashtrays when they used to smoke in meetings. I did everything she told me to do because I wanted to be like Kiki. And Kiki said to me, what do you want out of this deal? And I said, well, I'd like my dignity back. She said, honey, that's easy. I do dignified things. That was a revelation to me. I got a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I got a 12 and 12 and I read that book. And I worked those steps with Kiki and miracles began to happen. My life began to fall together.
little by little. And so much love. I couldn't stop the love from getting to me. There were so many friends. So the smallness of my world in alcoholism suddenly became so large. And I became so included in things, things I never knew I could like or love, relationships that I developed, friends that I have in meetings, people that I have the great privilege to sponsor, who teach me more about living than anything. You know, everything I know about life, everything I know about value, everything I know about love, I learned from Alcoholics Anonymous, from you people that I was so afraid of. And I want to close with something that um, has always been important to me. Kiki told me, read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I here and there, and she said, tell me what you read in Bill's story. And I said, well, that's the one story I didn't relate to because I'm not a stockbroker and I've never been in a sidecar and a motorcycle and I wasn't in the war. And, you know, I picked out everything that I didn't relate to. And Kiki says, honey, read it. Read, read the words between the black type, the feelings. You know, there were things like how dark it is before the dawn. I stood in the sunlight at last. All that was necessary for me to make a beginning was willingness. Little things. And gradually, I fell in love with that book. I fell in love with the doctor's opinion. It clearly identified my condition, that if I ingest any mind-altering or alcohol in this alcoholic body, I suffer from severe pathological mental deterioration. The second part of the second step, I am completely insane. I am not to be trusted. I am no longer in control. So I'll close with what I love from Sylvia Kay's Keys of the Kingdom, which is a beautiful story. Because I've been telling you that everything I learned, I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no principles when I got here. So I was fascinated by this word principle. And you know, I've been, I am the embodiment of the 12 principles. I practice them. On awakening, I drop to my knees. I say my prayers, protect me, correct me, redirect me. Lead me where you need me. Surprise me. I pray for a servant's heart, a saint's faith, a shepherd's watch, a Samaritan's hand. And I pray to give a little something back. And in Sylvia Kay's Keys of the Kingdom, she says this, AA is not a program of recovery that's over and finished. It's a design for living a design for living, and the challenges contained in its principles, principles are enough to keep any person striving for as long as they live. We cannot, we must not outgrow this program. This is a program of limitless expansion. I was on the Deborah Carmen program of diminishing returns when I got here. <laughs> Things were just going down. Limitless expansion, imagine that. That means that all my dreams can come true. All those dreams that I lost, all those things that I gave away, all the things that that Beast King alcohol stole has been repurposed, replaced, replenished, fulfilled. Sylvia Case says this also. 
Retrogression spells death for the alcoholic. If we're not moving forward, potentially we're moving backward or we're in a slippery place. I wanna stay right here with you guys, my feet planted, everything I have, everything that I am, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, rubber stamped property of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I owe it all to you. Thank you for asking me tonight. Thank our speaker, Deborah, again. I've asked Britt to read the promises uh, and lead us out in the Lord's Prayer. Good evening, Britt Alcoholic. I've got a hand that 